we're back in our study of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and this big discussion that the Apostle Paul has us in on this matter of spiritual gifts in the church, really a unique section of Scripture and a unique instruction by the Apostle Paul uh, on this matter of spiritual gifts. Many of the, the characteristics uh, of this instruction, many of the principles that we see the Apostle Paul bringing to bear on the Corinthians and on the Corinthian church, uh, if we're, I think if we're being honest and being careful in our study and in our exposition of these important passages, we would have to acknowledge that there are many elements about this instruction that are particular to the scene and what was happening in Corinth in that time. That's not a, a sort of an earth-shattering statement. I mean, all the New Testament epistles in particular um, are written to a church, to a group of people, a specific group of people in a specific time. So we have to kind of make sure that we're careful to understand some of the historical context and the background of what's going on as best we can. But as it relates to this matter of spiritual gifts in this particular section of instruction, um, it is very unique to look at it and then to try to think about what the Apostle Paul is teaching in chapters 12 through 14. And then to think about that instruction in light of what we know and what we experience or what maybe some of our own backgrounds have been. Or maybe we have friends and family that have a, have a certain view of spiritual gifts or a certain practice of spiritual gifts in the life of the church. And I think that the, the challenge with this oftentimes is that it can be quite confusing for us. Um, and it, it, at minimum it can be rather daunting for us to really know how best to engage in conversation and communication with, with those who have a different view than we might have on these matters. And to do so, obviously, with charity and with grace and with humility, but nevertheless with a sense of clarity and, and purpose and conviction. And so, as we continue to kind of walk through this, I just want to briefly, for today, without really unpacking these verses too extensively. I want to use them as a springboard into a little broader um, discussion. But if you'll look with me at our next little section here, we finished, you may recall, you may not recall, we finished last time with verse 26 in 1 Corinthians 12. And so if you pick up uh, verse 27 and sort of just read with me through the end of the chapter, notice what the Apostle Paul says. This is sort of a summary of what he's been saying Uh, throughout this chapter. He says in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is sort of transitioning into chapter 13, this last verse here in verse 31. I want to draw your attention, not so much to do a big summary or review of the extensive discussion we had on the body of Christ as being a body that's made up of diverse parts, And really, in light of this discussion of spiritual gifts, there are a diversity of gifts. They are apportioned diversely by the Spirit. They manifest themselves in a diversity of ministry context with a diversity of effect. Um, And so that's sort of the the 
the nature of this instruction in general, but he uses this body metaphor to profoundly draw our attention to not only the diversity, but also the important unity in the body of Christ. In particular, the unity that we have in the Spirit, who is, in fact, the giver of the gifts. And then he gets very direct and very explicit in verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ. In other words, I'm talking about you in all of this. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then again, he, he highlights this, this important sovereign reality. And God has appointed in the church. He has appointed gifted people and apportioned gifts amongst his people. That this is a sovereign work of God. We're going to unpack this in much more detail as we move forward. In the, in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at this passage uh, very specifically. But I want to kind of just use it today, as I said, as a springboard. And I just want us to think about the, the statement about really, really the rhetorical questions that we see the Apostle Paul posing here, starting in verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Are all apostles? I, I want to advocate that all are not apostles. That, that's what I want to advocate for. The implication, what is clearly inferred, and even some translations, who has the, the NASB? Who could read the NASB? How, how do those questions, po- how are they posed in the NASB? All are not apostles, are they? There you go. All are not apostles, are they? So rather than, rather than saying, are all apostles, question mark, the NASB formulates a different English translation by saying all are not apostles, are they? Which is a good translation of the Greek here. There is a, there is a, a, a term of negation implicit in the language in the Greek there. The Apostle Paul is basically by asking the question, answering the question, certainly not, right? So for me to make the statement or to entitle a lesson, all are not apostles, is just me agreeing with the Apostle Paul and not making a profound statement. And I'm not making a statement that anyone else would disagree with, likely, except for in certain strands of of uh, some more extreme versions of, of uh, charismatic belief and practice. But, but this principle of diversity, in particular, this reference to apostles, is, I think, really key for us to understand faith community church's position on these matters. And that's what I want to just sort of generally unpack today. I... I, I I don't want to, and it's not my intent really, even though there is a little bit uh, in, in, in one part toward the end where uh, it's a bit of a, a more polemic point-counterpoint sort of um, reading that I'll do. But my, my approach here is not to sort of say, well, this is this position and this is that position and here's how they compare and here's the strength of this argument over that argument. Okay, That's not the, the approach that I'd like to take today. And really, that's just my way of saying, if after we conclude, you have a counterpoint that you'd like to make, just don't. I mean, I mean, like, not today, okay? I mean, in other words, I, I, that, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to get into the weeds, I should say, on, well, what about this? Or what about this verse? Or all that? I mean, there, this is a, a hotly contested issue of, are the miraculous gifts that were characteristic in many ways of the apostolic era, are they continuing, are they to be continuing as normative 
in the life of the body of Christ in the local church today, or have those more miraculous, or we might refer to them as sign gifts, have they ceased? Did they cease with the end of the era of the apostles? That's really uh, a simple uh, distinction and a way to summarize the general nature of the, the varying positions here. Now, I want to read from our doctrinal statement. Let's just start there, okay? Here's what our doctrinal statement says under the section, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person possessing all the attributes of deity, including personality. Footnote 1 is referenced with a whole bunch of scriptures underneath it. Just so you know, it's loaded with footnotes, and we're going to look at some of those passages today. So let me me start over. The Holy Spirit is a divine person possessing all the attributes of deity, including personality, intellect, emotions, will, eternality, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, and truthfulness. In all the divine attributes, he is co-equal and co-substantial with the Father and with the Son. This is just a standard Orthodox Trinitarian statement about the person of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to execute the divine will with relation to all mankind. We recognize his sovereign activity in creation, the incarnation, the written revelation, and the work of salvation. A unique work of the Holy Spirit in this age began at Pentecost, when he came from the Father, as promised by Christ, to initiate the building of the body of Christ. And we talked about that. Remember, we went, spent some time and we went back and we looked at what actually happened at Pentecost. If we're going to talk about, for example, Pentecostalism, you may recall, we kind of looked at Pentecostalism as a certain movement or branch or denomination. Uh, an, otherwise, an otherwise faithful uh, denomination in many respects in terms of doctrine, but nevertheless, in this particular area, we would certainly disagree. So, Our doctrinal statement makes reference to this unique work of the Holy Spirit in this age as it began at Pentecost when He, the Spirit, came from the Father as promised by Christ to initiate the building of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit glorifies neither Himself nor those He gifts by ostentatious displays, but He does glorify Christ by implementing His work of redeeming the lost and building up believers in the most holy faith. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, effects regeneration, and baptizes all believers into the body of Christ. His presence in the Christian is, at, is the assurance of God to bring the believer into full redemption of their body. Now here's, here's where the, the, sort of the rubber meets the road for our discussion today. The Holy Spirit bestows the spiritual gifts by which believers serve God through His church for the perfecting of the saints today. Gifts such as speaking in tongues, Prophecy and the working of sign miracles in the beginning days of the church were for the purpose of pointing to and authenticating the apostles and prophets as revealers of divine truth and were never intended to be characteristic of the lives of believers. And then there's a footnote with passages that I'm going to look at with you in just a moment. It goes on to say the Holy Spirit is the divine teacher who guided the apostles and prophets into all truth as they committed to writing God's revelation the Bible. Through illumination, he enables men to understand truth. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells a believer. He sanctifies, instructs, empowers them for service, and seals them under the day of redemption. It is the duty of all those born of the Spirit to be filled by the Spirit. 
So that's our doctrinal statement on God, the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice there is this clear reference to our position or our understanding of what Scripture teaches about this particular type of gifting, this particular type of manifestation of spiritual gifting in, in, in the apostolic era. Now, the verses that are associated with the footnote of that particular statement about uh, what you might call our cessationist, simple cessationist statement, if you want to call it that. Uh, uh, the first uh, section, the first verses that are referenced there are 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, this is a reference not explicitly to, this is not a proof text for the entire cessationist position. This is simply to draw out from the Apostle Paul's own writings that we will get to very soon, that there is cessation, that, 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 that there is a cessation that is in view, even in the mind of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit. So, in other words, this idea or this principle of gifts passing away or certain gifts being only for a time is not some kind of foreign concept or some kind of aberrant, you know, interpretation of scripture. Okay. So that's, that's the reason why that, that verse is there. It's not to say, cause some people would say, well, uh, yeah. So what, what you mean by the perfect is the word of the written word of God. So by the time the canon came around, then we have no need of these gifts. And so that's what you're saying. No, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that this is a reference to the completion of the canon of the old of the New Testament scriptures. This is just to highlight the reality that Paul himself speaks of a cessation of certain gifts that they are, that there will be a time when these things are no longer needed. That's the point. But in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twelve, we have referenced this passage before. He makes a very clear statement, and, and the, the important thing about this statement, partly, is that it is in the midst of him defending his own apostleship against imposter apostles who are seeking to undermine his ministry of authoritative apostleship and instruction and bringing the true doctrine of the gospel of Christ to the church at Corinth. There were those that were seeking to undermine him and undermine his authority and thereby undermine everything that he had taught the Corinthians as gospel truth, as spirit-inspired revelation. They were seeking to undermine that. And so in that context, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he simply says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So in that short verse, he associates this signs and wonders and mighty works phrase with signs of a true apostle. In other words, there is a clear association of signs and wonders and mighty works with true apostleship. Okay, so when I say not all are apostles, you see where I'm kind of going with this. Now, I've already kind of touched on this as we've been walking through this. We've, we've alluded to this. We talked about sign gifts for a period of time, you may recall. We sort of looked throughout Scripture in, in Acts, for example. We looked in the Gospels and we saw how there is this reference to signs and their purpose in, in authenticating, authenticating uh, the, the message 
or the messenger who's bringing about divine truth, bringing to bear divine truth. And so here the Apostle Paul is simply, basically, you know, it's a bullet point on his resume. Like, here's my, here's my resume. I'm a true apostle because you know this because of what was performed among you with utmost patience. It was signs and wonders and mighty works. You saw it. You were a witness of it. And then you, another, foot, another footnoted passage uh, in our doctrinal statement for this section is Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. And then also, really, I'm going to read through verse 21 because I feel like verse 20 kind of cuts off the thought a little bit short. But the actual reference is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 20. But I'll read all the way through verse 21 first. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is, this is talking about the, the being brought in, the Gentiles being brought in with, uh, by, by the work of Christ and by the gospel, being brought into fellowship with God. It's, it's really a statement about Gentiles being saved. So then you are no longer strangers, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is just another distinctive statement, a distinctive reference to the, the unique role of the apostle in particular. He says apostles and prophets, but the apostles in particular, the apostolic work was a foundation building work. And we looked at that earlier in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, what was it, chapter... Um, Four, maybe I'm losing my memory of the actual spot where he talks about he actually cautions the Corinthians against anyone coming and building a different foundation than the foundation that was laid by me, the apostle to the Gentiles. So there is this distinctiveness of the apostle role, the, 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 the early church apostle role particularly here with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. And then again in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 4 and 5, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So again, just another sort of designation of distinction in the role of the apostle in the early church. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, you have a very fascinating and very rich uh, section that obviously we're not going to be able to unpack. But just, just note that this particular section, uh, the, the, the teaching is to Jews. This, this instruction is for Jewish people, and it's instructing Jews in the, the work of the continued work of redemption that God has brought about and is continuing to bring about through the work of Christ. It's, it's helping Old Testament, basically Old Testament Jews to further understand doctrinally the new covenant, in essence. It's bringing together Old and New Covenant into an understanding of how that is brought about in Christ. And so listen to what what uh, the writer of Hebrews says in kind of looking back to that work. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention. We must pay, excuse me, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved, and again, this is just picking up on some context that we're not going to have time to deal with, but for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, then verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? To, to these Jewish people, how can we neglect what has been made known? The angels declared it, it proved true. There's Old Testament uh, um, uh, continuity in all of this with... Uh, with um, uh, every transgression or disobedience receiving a just retribution. And then it was declared at first, going on in verse 3, by the Lord, speaking of Christ. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So this is looking back in time to the advent of Christ and his ministry that was a ministry of teaching and preaching, but also massive miracle working power that was also given to disciples and to the apostles. And then was also manifest by the apostles as the gospel was going forth and the foundation of the church was being laid. So these are the passages that are just, I'm just giving you this, Laying it out for you. These are the the verses that the footnote in our doctrinal statement references to sort of provide some scriptural reference points for what we believe is an indication of uniqueness of the apostolic era, uniqueness of the apostolic role and function, and in particular in their uh, possession of and use and manifestation of gifts for specific revelatory authenticating purposes. In the life of the New Testament church. In laying that kind of foundation. Okay? Now, I just want to make sure you guys understand. Uh, and I probably should have said this at the beginning. But uh, I, just, just understand that the, the cessationist position is not a position that denies the, the, the prerogative of God to do what He wills, as He wills, and when He wills. The Lord is in heaven and he does what he pleases, okay? And, and, and again, I think it's important for, for all of us to just be reminded of the fact that it's, it's easy for us to go to, um, you might just call bumper sticker type sloganeering, or, or even just a little bit of pejorative statements about a counterpoint position. And I don't want to be guilty of that, and I certainly don't want others who might disagree with me to sort of mischaracterize where, what I'm trying to articulate by doing the same. So sometimes you'll have people say, well, I just, you know, I just don't think it's right to put God in a box. Not only do I not think it's right, I believe that it is impossible. I mean, it's just absolutely and utterly impossible for me or anyone else to put God in a box. But I am all for putting myself in a box. And I'm very keen on putting God's people in a box. That, 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 that's what doctrinal clarity and instruction and accountability and church discipline and all these other things. That's what it's about. Guess what? You're in a box. You actually, if you're a member of this church, you signed up to be in a box. If you want to just kind of be crude in the way that we're kind of describing these things. You see what I'm saying? So there's no sense in which the, 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 there's an argument here for for. Uh, you know, God not being able to do something. That's absurd. That's heresy. But it is 
based upon, I would say that the, the, the primary thrust of the cessationist position is really, it's not, um, I want to be careful how I say this, and I haven't really thought this through fully, so I might have to retract this 100%. But as I understand it, as I see it, as I think about you know, the, the, the way that this flows out of Scripture, it is not robustly and technically exegetical. It is more observational of what you see just coming out of the pages of Scripture. And the reason for that is that so much of what the position is kind of based upon is tied to an observation of narrative, of what God has done. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, the reason why I, I, I hesitate there in terms of like being too... To be too eager to jump on some kind of continuationist bandwagon is that clearly what the Apostle Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and furthermore, what he's doing in the entire letter is leveling massive and sweeping correctives over and over and over and over again. And this is about correcting something that wasn't right, this whole section. So I I am not inclined to go and build sort of a strong exegetical argument for continuation of the sign gifts based exclusively or primarily upon the Apostle Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, because I know the overall tone and theme and emphasis of that is to highlight and to correct and to redirect what's, what's not being done right, what's not being believed right. So I'm trying to understand, like, what's the corrective here? Well, what's, what, where, where, where were the Corinthians off? Not so much where they, were they right, because that's not the preponderance of the instruction there. So, all that to say, the, the nature of this particular position is not about saying that God cannot, does not, has not, will not, okay? There are testimonies that people would, would, um, would articulate of you know, something happening on some foreign mission field or, or God miraculously healing someone. I mean, you may have been a recipient of a miraculous healing that that's, you, you were legitimately diagnosed with something and God intervened. Like medicine wasn't working and treatments weren't working. But and so at some point, God just immediately removed a diagnosed uh, sort of biologically determined ailment, and there was evidence and indication and testable, you know, pro, uh, diagnosis, and then it was gone. Okay, and God does do that and can do that. What we are talking about are signs and wonders and healings and miracles, and even I would say the gift of tongues in the life of the church that is to be characteristic of body life of what we do as we work and serve together to build one another up and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and to hold one another accountable to good and sound doctrine. That's what we're talking about, okay? Now, that, that was sort of my second introduction after I'd already started the lesson, uh, sort of with a few um, qualifiers there. Now, I'm just going to give you a few sort of... How much time do we have? Okay, good. I'm going to give you a few sort of high-level... Uh, rationales, reasons um, for the cessationist view. Okay, cessationist view meaning the 
miraculous sign gifts that I just enumerated are not normative in the church today. They're not the normal course in the church today. Okay. The first reason I would give you is simply the clear, observable pattern of God's intervening, revelatory work throughout redemptive history. I just pulled that off the top of my head. Didn't that sound like so, you know, so smooth, right? I wrote that and I'm like going, what am I doing with all these words? Okay, let me, just, let me say it again. The clear, observable pattern of God's intervening, revelatory work throughout redemptive history. This is why I talk about, this is, this is based upon a sweeping observation largely of the narrative of God's work that we see in Scripture. The narrative of God's major um, movements of redemption and revelation that we see both in Old and New Testament. Listen to Tom Pennington in his book, A Biblical Case for Cessationism. Here's how he describes this. He says, Scripture records only three brief periods in which God worked miracles through uniquely gifted men. Two of those occurred in the Old Testament during the ministries of Moses and Joshua, a period of about 65 years, by the way, and of Elijah and Elisha, again, a period of about 65 years. And then the final period is recorded in the New Testament during the ministry of Jesus and his apostles, again, similarly, about 70 years of time. He goes on to say, in about 4,000 years of Old Testament history, There were only 130 years in which God empowered men to work miracles. Now, isn't that interesting? Because when you you think about how Old Testament narrative and story and recounting of events and the works of God, how that sort of resonates in your own mind, doesn't it loom larger and bigger and grander and more expansive and common and frequent than just that? I mean, it does me. I'll just acknowledge that because of the nature of, of, of what God has done because of the, the grandeur of his work when he intervenes in history and, and, and intervenes in a revelatory kind of way with major moves in his redemptive plan, it is like, it, it sort of like floods the zone. It, it, it sort of overwhelms the scene, right? But when you really look at the, the expanse of 4,000 years of Old Testament history, the total of those... Two periods are only about a hundred and what I say, 130 years in which God was doing these kinds of unusual workings of signs and miracles and that kind of thing. Pennington goes on to say, even during those years, miracles didn't happen frequently. Why? Because everyone didn't have the ability to perform miracles. Only four God appointed men did. And even those men God's prophets didn't perform miracles all the time. Miracles were rare, even in their lives. Now listen to John Wolver's statement about this. He says, A period of miracles is always a time when special testimony is needed to confirm the authenticity of God's prophets. An unusual display of miracles is, therefore, not an ordinary feature of each generation to be called down at will by the godly, but is rather articulated in the purpose of God for its value in promotion of his truth. End quote. So, in other words, when you just look at, we'll just isolate it to the Old Testament. When you just look at the Old Testament, there is a clear pattern of unique 
seasons or epochs of time where God is at work in unique and profound ways to bring about redemptive truth, revelation, moves of God in His sovereign redemptive plan and according to His sovereign and redemptive will, in which the deployment of, the the imbuing of miracle working power is granted, but granted rather narrowly and rather specifically for very narrow and specific purposes and very narrow and specific times, even within the times that these things are happening. That's just, that's just observational. So see what I'm saying? I, I'm not going in and doing this exegesis of every time, you know, Moses, it, it, you know, leveled a plague against Pharaoh. I mean, we're not, it's not necessary to do that, to just observe, broadly speaking. That was at least the pattern in the Old Testament. It happens again in the New Testament. And in fact, what we see in the New Testament, as I've already alluded to, is what you could inarguably and without question refer to as an unprecedented explosion of signs and wonders and miracles during the ministry of Christ. So in other words, Christ, God incarnate, comes onto the scene to bring about the sort of the completion, if you will, in many respects, of God's redemptive work. In other words, the the final sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice to bring about this God incarnate ministry and work and the, the vastness, the, 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 the sheer number of miracles, of healings, of manifestations of legitimate, fully attested to miracle power was unprecedented. There's never been anything like it. And so even when comparing the time of Jesus in this regard to the times of, for example, Moses, Moses and Joshua or Elijah and Elisha, it doesn't, that, those times don't even compare to what happened in the time of Christ. And it stands to reason. We're, we're talking about God incarnate, right? So it's sort of like, yeah, it makes sense. B.B. Warfield says this, he says, The number of the miracles which Jesus wrought may easily be, may easily be underrated. It has been said that, in effect, he banished disease and death from Palestine for three years of his ministry. I mean, we've had several sermons recently where Shane's been talking about these, the, these periods where everyone that was brought to him, he healed. Everyone. The whole town was healed of their diseases. And we're talking like something that is unprecedented in terms of its magnitude and its number and its impact. It's very unique. And then you have this unique endowment of signs and wonders and miracles given to the apostles and a few of their associates as the gospel was initially proclaimed and the foundation of the church was established. So this gets into this season of, you might call the apostolic era. So Christ ascends, or just prior to his ascension, he gives these instructions to these apostles, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and the apostles were given unique power so that as they took this message, they would be identified in the same way that Christ was identified as someone who is from God. So that their message 
would carry weight and authority as they brought it. And the interesting note to that is that when you really look at Acts and sort of the foundation of the New Testament church, the sort of the, the spreading of the gospel initially, this is what you find over and over again. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22, this is how the apostle Peter, uh, this is one of his statements from his, that, that, that famous um, sermon at Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Peter starts by saying, get ready. We are continuing this work. The work of Jesus Christ himself that was attested to you. You've seen this. You've heard Uh, eyewitness testimony of this, of these mighty works and wonders that were signs that God did through him. This This was God incarnate. This was God's man brought to earth for the purpose of redemption. And so he begins his message with this statement. And then you go on in chapter 2, verse 43, as... You know, that wonderful, more than 3,000 were added to that number. You have that response. What what do we do? Like, how how do we respond to this? And and you have this sort of this large salvation um, um, reality take place where 3,000 were added to their their number. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 43, that's sort of a description of of that, that scene and that environment with those new believers, that New Testament church, that fledgling church. It says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And then again in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. So they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And then Acts chapter 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So what you see... Predominantly in Acts, there are some exceptions. You have uh, Philip and Stephen in Acts who also were given in specific uh, times and and I think for specific purposes were also given uh, uh, miracle working power, if you will. Um, But the the predominant sort of theme that it seems Luke is conveying as he's giving this this narrative flow uh, and and referencing this, this signs and wonders attestation kind of unique thing that was going on was that it was happening principally at the hands, by the hands of the apostles, through the apostles, in other words. Okay. The other thing that's interesting is you just kind of observe. Okay. Again, not, not verse by verse exegesis. We can look at those at any given point, but just, just observe that there is an apparent diminishment of these attesting signs, even during the writing of the New Testament. So in other words, this cessation, this buzzword, sort of like, oh no, put God in a box kind of thing, that seems to be already happening 
even as the New Testament is still being written. So it's not as though, again, I think the challenge is to think in terms of box checking or formulas. So the idea is, okay, so I guess what happened was that uh, John dies, AD 90, and God says, okay, we're done. But that's not what happened. That's not even how you, how you have to kind of read and observe what's taking place as the New Testament is being written, even before AD 90. And I'll give you a few examples. The Apostle Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians, has a thorn in his flesh. You guys remember that, right? Verse 7 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited. So, by the way, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, worker of signs and wonders amongst the Corinthians, bearing the marks of a true Apostle, as he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Here he is, speaking of this, this thorn in the flesh, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, this speaks to a number of different principles here that we could, we could extrapolate. But the first and foremost one is that notice that the Apostle Paul's response to this thorn in the flesh is not to seek healing from another apostle. It's not to speak of you know, him healing himself or any, any such thing. In other words, the sign gift of healing was apparently not to be applied to him in this particular instance. No sign was needed. And in fact, quite the opposite. This is the other principle I would point out, which really to me is so counter to much of what we see in the, in the broader, and I would say even less doctrinally sound uh, um, quarters of charismatic practice and doctrine. It's this idea of Suffering, even physical suffering, as being something that God intends to necessarily deliver us from. That's a doctrinal conviction that is articulated. But what it is here is something that is used by God to keep Paul from becoming conceited so that his strength is perfected in his weakness. This to me is a profound reality. And it stands to reason that this is 2 Corinthians. Time has passed from 1 Corinthians. By the way, 1 Corinthians was a very early letter in the, in the outworking of the, the gospel uh, expansion and the establishment of the church. So now he's writing in 2 Corinthians. And he's just basically stating, I prayed and the Lord left it. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And the, and the purpose there is so that Paul can learn to boast all the more in his weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. So in other words, the Apostle Paul is articulating by virtue of his own physical pain that was inflicted upon him for the purposes God had for him. He is saying that in him understanding more of God's grace and its sufficiency, therein lies his power. 
not in the miracle working power that he also manifested as sign gifts as he brought the gospel to the Corinthians. That is powerful in my estimation. That's powerful instruction. I'll talk maybe a little bit more about that in just a moment. Think of another example. Again, we're talking about this apparent diminishment of, of, of these attesting signs, even during the writing of the New Testament. But just think about Trophimus for a minute. There was no healing for Trophimus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. He says, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. What? Heal him. I mean, you're talking gospel ministry is in play here. This is an associate of Paul. This is a a faithful worker in gospel ministry. Heal him. I left him in Miletus because he was ill. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, listen to the actual medical advice the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy himself. No longer drink any water. Excuse me. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul's counsel to Timothy is not, you know, go to, go to whoever's got the gift of healing there in Ephesus as you're ministering and have them pray over you so that you can receive, the, you can receive a healing. His, his advice to him is first century medicinal. Take a Tylenol. You know, get some Pepto-Bismol in your stomach. I mean, that's essentially what that is. Okay? So, again, this, this is not sort of some, you know, proof text to say, there you go, that proves everything. It's just an observation. Like, wh- what is that about? Well, my observation is, is that apparently there is a diminishment in some way of these sign gifts being kind of on the scene and emphasized in, in some way, particularly amongst God's people and in the life of the church. It just seems to me that that's the case. Otherwise, it seems to me, again, seems to me that there might be some other testimony given here, some other advice, some other opportunity for the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul to give testimony to his miracle-working power. But that's not what we see. So there is this recognition in my estimation, there's this observed reality, this clear observable pattern that we see just writ large throughout Old and New Testament of God's intervening and revelatory work through redemptive history that does not comport with a continuationist kind of view. It comports with a, a more of a, a waning off, a ceasing of these things for, for God's reasons and God's purposes. Okay. So reason number two, I would just argue that there is a clear and acknowledged discontinuity between new Testament and contemporary sign gifts. There is a clear and acknowledged discontinuity between actual new Testament sign gifts and what we see and hear of and are, are spoken and are and what is spoken about and taught about in contemporary circles regarding these sign gifts. In other words, they're not the same. They're different. 
Robert Saucy says this, The issue of cessationism is not whether God still works miracles, but whether the same phenomena of miraculous spiritual gifts seen in the early New Testament church are normal for the entire church age. The same. Tim Challey says, Even as we discuss continuationism, we need to acknowledge that what has continued is, at best, a mere shadow of what the Bible describes. Now, I want to read a pretty long excerpt on this point from from, uh, Phil Johnson. He wrote an article. I don't think I even wrote down the the name of the article. Um, I think the name of the article is, You Might Be a a Cessationist Too. He was writing, I think, to those who are in the more continuationist, have the more continuationist view. But he's, he's saying, you might actually be a cessationist. As well, that's the title of the article. And I'm going to read a fairly lengthy excerpt. And I want you to kind of, I mean, his argumentation. I think is very, um, very helpful and, and clear and succinct. <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> under the idea or the principle of a clear discontinuity, even an acknowledged by proponents of continuationism, an acknowledged discontinuity between the gifts as they were manifest, these sign gifts as they were manifest in the New Testament, versus what we see today. Okay. Phil Johnson says this, If you believe any of the miraculous spiritual gifts were operative in the apostolic era only, and that some or all of those gifts gradually ceased before the end of the first century, you are a cessationist. If you believe all the spiritual gifts described in the New Testament have continued unabated, unchanged, and unaltered since the initial outpouring of tongues at Pentecost, you are a continuationist. It's pretty hard to find a real continuationist, he goes on. Absolute non-cessationists exist only at the bizarre fringe of the charismatic movement. They are the sort of people who like to declare one another apostles, claim and inevitably abuse all the apostolic prerogatives, sometimes invent fanciful stories about people raised from the dead, and twist and corrupt virtually every category of doctrine related to the gospel, the atonement or Christian discipleship, and self-denial. That's basically a reference to literally the, the... so here, here's the sad part about all this. The majority of those in the continuationist camp, unfortunately, are on what you might consider to be the extreme fringes. Those that are continuationist because they just they don't see this cessationist you know principle. They they look at some passages of scripture and they see that as an indication that the gifts could be continuing today. I mean they have a they have a a sound and reasonable view of scripture and a, a sound orthodox uh, theology, and they're not on the fringes of charismatic you know lunacy or anything like that. Those are the minority, the vast minority of people. That's the problem with all of this. A big problem with all of this. So what he just described are those that would sort of claim we are full-on continuationists insofar as even we have apostles. And the apostles are just like the apostles from the New Testament with all of their miracle-working power. But then he talks about the abuses. He goes on, he says, But evangelical charismatics, especially the Reformed variety, do not really believe there are apostles today who have the same authority as the apostles in the early church. And that's true. Some may use the term apostle, but they invariably insist that the apostleship they recognize today is a lesser kind of apostleship 
than the office and gift that belonged to the apostles in the first century. We're going to be talking about that. Don't, don't worry. We're going to talk about the office of apostle versus an apostle as being one who's just sent like a missionary use of it and that kind of thing. He says, now, think through the implications of that position. By arguing for a lesser kind of apostleship, they are actually conceding that the authentic original New Testament gift of apostleship has ceased. They have, in effect, embraced a kind of cessationism themselves. This is kind of the heart of his argument. There, are, there really are not that many full-on, fully committed continuationists. Because even, even faithful and, and you know, uh, very much like-minded to us continuationists believe that, there's, that something's changed. There are things that are different. Something has ceased. And in this case, the full, full-orbed uh, apostle role in the New Testament. <clears throat> he says, note, there is no more or less biblical warrant for this view than for any other kind of cessationism. Nonetheless, every true evangelical holds to some form of cessationism. We all believe that the canon of Scripture is closed, right? We do not believe we should be seeking to add new inspired material to the New Testament canon. We hold to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, delivered in the person of Christ and through the teaching of his apostles and the inscripturated and inscripturated in the New Testament. We believe scripture as we have it is complete. And those who do not believe that are not really evangelicals, they are cultists and false teachers who would add to the word of God. But notice this. If you acknowledge that the canon is closed and the gift of apostleship has ceased, you've already conceded that the heart of the cessationist argument. You excuse me, you've already conceded the heart of the cessationist argument. That's not all though. Most leading Reformed Charismatics go even further than that. They freely admit that all the Charismatic gifts in operation today are of a lesser quality than the gifts we read about in the New Testament. For example, in Wayne Grudem's book, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today, probably the single most important and influential work written to defend modern prophecy, Grudem writes that, quote, No responsible Charismatic holds the view that prophecy today is infallible and inerrant revelation from God. He says charismatics are arguing for a, quote, lesser kind of prophecy, which is not on the same level as the inspired prophecies of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles, and which may even and very often are fallible, end quote. Grudem writes, quote, there is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement that prophecy is impure and will contain elements which are not to be obeyed or trusted, end quote. So just, just, that's just making a point. You've got a very uh, reputable, respected, godly, uh, and very bright theologian, Wayne Grudem, who is, who is a continuationist, who is acknowledging that there's a difference between, for example, prophecy today and what was referred to, especially in the Old Testament. He would argue from uh, a little bit of different argument from the, from the New Testament prophecy in 1 Corinthians that we'll look at when we get to those sections. He goes on, Jack Deere, former Dallas Seminary prof turned charismatic advocate, likewise admits in his book, Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit, that he has not seen anyone today performing miracles or possessing gifts of the same quality as the signs and wonders of the apostolic era. In fact, it's 1027. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to have to, okay, I'm going to have to pick this up. I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, I stopped midstream. I just looked at the clock. 
I, he, he just talks about uh, Jack Deere, who's another advocate and a theologian from Dallas Seminary, who also acknowledges there's a difference. There's a, there's a discontinuity, in other words, between New Testament sign gifts and what's, what we're seeing today. So I'm going to not read any more and give you one more point that I guess we'll talk about maybe some next time. I think another reason why a cessationist view is a sound biblical view um, is that the clear prevalence is because of the clear prevalence of disorder, false doctrine, and unbiblical spiritual authority within most continuationist churches and movements. Most, sadly. There is confusion, there is disorder, and there is unbiblical notions of spiritual authority, or there's confusion about spiritual authority. And I'll just close with two other things that I am going to talk about next time. It's weird. Most of the manifestations of this kind of stuff, even by those who are very much like-minded in us in many, many ways, the way that that, that is sort of brought to bear in the context of a, of a, uh, a gathering, an assembly of, of God's people, it's weird. And I'm going to talk about that explicitly. I know that's a strong, maybe even a little bit of a pejorative angle on it, but I'm just telling you, it, it, I think that it is, it, at least is, is, it is, it is um, implicitly um, counter to some of the things that the Apostle Paul is driving at in 1 Corinthians 12 and, and 14. Um, this, particularly this matter of disorder and, and being understood, being intelligible, you know, being a witness to unbelievers coming in, these kinds of things. We'll unpack that. So there's a weirdness to it. But think about the authority piece for just a moment. And it's now 1029. I have one minute. <laughs> think about the authority piece of it. Um, if there are active prophets today, even if there's a lesser kind, and even if we have to allow for you know, a, a fallible version of a New Testament type of prophetic gift who's in charge who 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 has authority in the the life of the church i literally watched a video and again this is probably on i don't even remember the the specific church or whatever but i literally watched a pastor of a church on a video invite an elementary age child girl to the stage to convey some type of prophetic word to someone in the congregation. In other words, that pastor yielded authority to this child. Why? Because she had a prophetic word. I'm just telling you, those kinds of elements to me are so counter to what the Apostle Paul is driving toward in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So with that, I'll uh, say...